Martin was born on November the 10th, 1483, in Alban, Germany. He was the son of a poor silver miner, destined by his parents to study law and to raise the family out of the dust of poverty. Yet after many years of struggling with this particular vocation, he turned his attention to the monastery and became an Augustinian monk. There he would give himself tirelessly to the study of the monastics and the other mystic writers. As he continued his study, Martin found himself often tormented with the overwhelming sense that God hated him. He wrestled from some time and was finally given to the study of Romans in preparation for a lecture that he was to do at the university. And as he studied, there was one verse that particularly gave him pause. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, it is the phrase, the righteousness of God. This was frightening to him. How can an awfully holy God accept a wicked man like Martin Luther? How could Luther be accepted by this righteous and holy God? And so he would spend years seeking to do good things, hours and hours of penance and prayer and works in order to solely his conscience just a little bit. But all of this effort was to no avail until as he continued to study through Romans, he came across another little phrase. The righteousness of God by faith. It was as if in that moment all of the weight, all of the fear was gone. His eyes were open. And he could see and understand that God would accept him not by his own righteousness, not by the good deeds that he had done, but by the righteousness that is imputed by faith in Christ. It was by faith that he could be acceptable and accepted. But Martin, as he found, as he began to tell others of this righteousness that is by faith, he, he found that, that he was not alone in his fear of death and judgment. It, it was as if the whole of Christendom was, was covered with this idea and captivated by the fear of dying before a holy God. And so... So began the Protestant Reformation that you and I have the privilege of participating in even today. As we affirm the truth that justification is by faith alone. And the question I want us to think about this morning is how could I know, how can you know that you are saved? How can I be assured that this holy and righteous God would accept me into His presence? How can you really know? How can you be assured? How, how do you really know for sure that we are saved and justified not by our works, but solely by the work of another? 
I want our minds to be filled with this idea this morning and this question to be prevailed upon us. Jesus has been teaching through the Gospel of Luke that the kingdom of God is coming. And that it is coming in ways that cannot be observable. That the kingdom of God comes as the king captivates lives that are captive to sin. And as Christ captivates us, and we become captivated by Christ, we are transferred into His kingdom. And in this way, the kingdom of God is coming here on earth. But even as Jesus teaches of this coming kingdom, there is an overarching question that is related to the question I just posed. And that is, who is in and who is out? Who does this king we call Jesus rescue? Who does he allow to enter into his kingdom? Who's in and who's out? This is what I want you to have as we think of Luke chapter 18. I invite you to turn there if you've not done so already. It's found on page 877 in, your, in the Black Pew Bibles. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to take that home with you today, read it, and get to know God better through it. It is our gift to you. This morning, however, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. And we're going to study through all the way to the end of this page on to verse 30. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Friend, I hope as as I read through there, you saw the overarching theme of the kingdom of God and particularly that question of who is in and who's out. Who is welcomed into the kingdom? Is it the Pharisee? Is it the self-righteous ones? Is Is it the ones who are hindering children? Is it the one who's rich? Perhaps could buy his way in? No, I hope that you see that the main idea of this text, one overarching truth that brings all of these verses together, is that the kingdom of God is for those who humbly come to Jesus in childlike dependence. In other words, the kingdom of God is only for those that see themselves as unworthy and therefore depend upon the worth of another. My hope this morning in this sermon is to give us confidence that we can be justified, that is acceptable and accepted by God through faith in Christ. I hope this morning to squash any hope that you have to go to heaven on your own righteousness, on something that you've done, some merit that is praiseworthy in you. I hope this morning that you leave with a sense of overwhelming confidence that you will be accepted by God, not because you are a great person, but because you believe in a great Savior. And so this morning, I've organized this text around three individuals who are out. Three people who cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Three types of people who will not be allowed to go to heaven. Number one, the self-righteous. The self-righteous. Number two, the self-sufficient. The self-sufficient. And number three, the self-serving. Those who seek to serve themselves rather than to be served by Christ. These are the three main ideas that we have to think about this morning. Number one, we see that the self-righteous are not welcome in the kingdom unless they find righteousness in another. Jesus tells us this parable in verses 9 through 14, and like the parable that preceded it, Luke helps us as the readers to understand the main idea. 
He does not lead the reader to confusion as he writes to Theophilus to give him an orderly account of all the things that he has come to know and believe. He helps Theophilus by telling him in verse 9 that Jesus told this parable. Why? Because some trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. Jesus here was pastoring, discipling His people. He's helping us understand that we gain entrance into the kingdom not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Himself. He tells us this parable, and we have two characters in the parable. Number one, we are told there was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. Now, for you and I, when we hear the words Pharisee, our mind is immediately filled with various ideas, uh, things like hypocrisy, ideas like, oh, they were the people who thought themselves better than everybody else. They were the religious leaders. They were the know-it-alls. But that's our 21st century contemporary minds. We understand that. This is not how a first century Jew would have heard the word Pharisee. When they heard the word Pharisee, they would have heard men who were holy men. Men who believed in the Bible. Men who were conservative, godly men. Who were Bible-believing men. And they were ones who wanted to help others obey the, the, the law. They were lawyers and interpreters of the law. They weren't what all these ideas that we automatically conjured in our minds. And so, when Jesus says that this Pharisee presents himself to God in such a self-righteous way, this would have been shocking to their ears. To hear the word that the, the, that the tax collector went home justified would have been shocking to their emotional systems. We are told of two men, a self-righteous Pharisee and a humble traitor. Well, if the Pharisee was the, the one who is seen as the godly, conservative, Bible believer, the tax collector, as we've thought in the weeks previous, was seen as a traitor. Tax collectors were Jews that participated in the Roman occupation by extorting their own brothers and sisters for the occupying forces there. Of course, in order for Rome to have an army, they needed to generate money, and they generated money through taxation. And these tax collectors were responsible with getting and gaining taxes from the nation of Israel and padding the books in order to take a little bit off for themselves. This is a quite frightening two pair we have here. And it is a surprising twist when we find that the tax collector is the one who is welcomed into the kingdom and not the Pharisee. Of all the people that could have been accepted, of course it would be that Bible believer. Of course it would be the one who obeyed all the rules and did all the good things. Of course God wants to save good people. Not traitors like this tax collector. We'll notice here in the text the way, the way that Jesus paints a portrait of the Pharisee. First we see that the Pharisee stood by himself. 
He stood alone. He was too good to be around everyone else as they gathered there twice a day to pray in the temple. It was a, it was a time when they would meet with God through prayer. And as he goes in, he stands off from everyone else, demonstrating his own position of power and importance and prestige. And he goes on to pray a gloriously bad prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like those sinful people around me. And he goes on to list them, the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, even this, this traitor. And then he goes on to tell of his resume. He gives God his resume. Oh God, you know I fast twice a week. Well, well that's great. Uh, I, I never asked you to do that. Um, in fact, I only asked you to do it one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. That's the only day you need to fast. But, but this Pharisee, uh, he did it twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Old Testament never taught that you, you tithe on everything you get. You only tithe on certain items. You didn't tithe on everything. I tithe everything I get, he says. This man was so filled with his own self-righteousness, he couldn't see past himself. It could be said that he went there to pray to himself. Even as some, you'll notice the little footnote there on the word prayed in verse 11, Various translations might say something like that he prayed to himself. This is most likely a, an addition to the text, not original to the text, but you can see how years ago Christians could rightly understand that this man was, was involved in some form of self-worship. He wasn't worshiping God, he was worshiping himself. Look how impressive my resume is, God. You must be, I must be acceptable to you. Then came the humble traitor. And notice in verse 13 we are told that he's, sta he's standing far off. Not by himself, but, but he understands himself to be so vile, so wicked, so unwelcomed that he stands far off. That he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. It is a posture of humility and beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word mercy there means to have pity on. God, have pity on me. God, be merciful to me. Crying out, I am a sinner. And Jesus tells us that that man went to his house justified. Uh, Jesus uses the word justified here. The, the word that Luke records is the forensic justification. What, it is to be declared right with God. And only God declares justification. This is what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 3. That we are justified, made right with God. That our broken relationship, that our sin has severed, well, friend, has been made right or justified by faith. It was not the man who was self-righteous, but the one who looked to a merciful God who would then save him. As Jesus makes emphatically clear, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Friend, isn't Jesus an example of that in Philippians 2? That being found in, the, in human form, he humbled himself. Jesus was a perfect example of one who was the, the second person of the Trinity, reigning and ruling over the cosmos from eternity past. And he, he clothed himself in human flesh in order to die the death that you and I deserve. Those who think themselves worthy of the kingdom of God will not be allowed entry. But those who recognize their desperate need of God's mercy will be justified and given entrance into the kingdom of God. Friend, this morning we began by thinking of our own sin. We did not do that in order to make you sad or to instill some emotional response in you. But rather, for us to be frank and honest like this man was, Friend, only when we come to this point are we ready to be saved by God. Only when we recognize our complete and utter dependence upon Him, Jesus makes clear it is only those who humbly come to Him who will gain entrance. Friend, are you proud? Are you somehow in your mind thinking That if you turn up into heaven today, that some good deed that you did in your past is somehow going to be meritorious for your entrance? That that check that you just stroked a moment ago and put in the offering plate will somehow impress a holy God into allowing you into your entrance? Friend, the kingdom of God is not for people who are proud but for those who are humble. Brothers and sisters, let us always remember that we are saved by grace and not by works. We did not deserve any of this, but God in His grace, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We ought to be the most humble lot in town. As J.C. Ryle helpfully points out, let these things sink down into your hearts, he writes. He that has learned to feel his sins has great reason to be thankful. We are never in the way of salvation until we know that we are lost, ruined, guilty, and helpless. Happy indeed, Raoul writes, is he who is not ashamed to sit by the side of the publican. When our experience tallies with his, we may hope that we have found a place in the school of God. Oh friend, let our, let our hearts be humbled this morning that Christ will accept you. That you can, be, you can go home justified today to know with confidence that you are saved simply by doing this. Trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That His perfect life was for your wicked life. That His perfect death on the cross was so that you would not have to face the penalty of death. And that you too can inherit eternal life. Who's in and who's out? Well, friend, I hope you see that Jesus makes so evidently clear that one cannot inherit the kingdom of God on their own self-righteous merits. 
The self-righteous are out. But so also are the self-sufficient. Jesus goes on, we are told in verse 15. And as Jesus was doing His ministry, we are told that, that families, moms and dads, began to bring to Jesus their infants that He might pray over them. Might communicate some sort of trust and care of them. We have a picture here of a, of a group of individuals who were dependent upon others. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach his disciples that only the self, those rather, only those who are sufficiently dependent upon Christ will be saved. Notice what he says. As they were bringing the children to Jesus, his disciples began to rebuke them. Now, why would they do this? Well, friend, it's helpful to understand how society viewed children in the first century. Children were viewed as those who were in the way. Uh, they weren't able to do meaningful labor. They were constantly needy and having to be fed. And they were, as a lot, just a, a, a reckless whole group. And wholesale were set aside. In fact, Edwards says this in his commentary, that one will search ancient literature in vain for sympathy towards the young comparable to that which is shown by Jesus. You would uh, have a hard time finding anyone showing the kind of compassion to children that we find Jesus showing in this particular passage. And so rightly the disciples are, are discouraged by this whole behavior and want it to stop. But again, Jesus uses it to teach. And notice what he says there in verse 16. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Friend, what a wonderful truth it is. If you're a child here today, the kingdom of God is for you. You can know Jesus in a saving way. Uh, we believe children can come to know Jesus Christ and can be saved of their sins. We ought never to think that a child is too dull, too dumb, too uneducated, not mature enough to receive the wonderful truth of the gospel. In fact, if we were to poll this room, no doubt many of us in this room came to know Jesus at a very young age. Oh, friend, we want to cultivate this kind of activity even among our own children, helping them follow Jesus. We ought never to hinder a child from growing and knowing this is why we invest so much time as a congregation uh, to child care. Not only so that parents can hear the gospel preached, but so children can hear God's Word taught at their particular level. Well, Jesus goes on to say, in using these children as an illustration, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, here's the point. Here's the point that Jesus is making in this text. He's saying... If you want into the kingdom, you have to come to me the way a child comes to a parent. You know it. You know it. Arms wide open. Help me. Pick me up. I'm hurt. I'm crying. I need food. I'm hungry. Uh, parents, how many times in the day do you hear, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry? Oh, friend, what a wonderful truth. Why are they coming to you? Why don't they go to the neighbor? Why don't they go to the mailman? Why don't, why don't they go elsewhere? Oh, friend, because you're the parent and you'll provide. They've learned that if I come to my parent, they'll feed me. In the same way, we ought to go to God for salvation. 
We ought not to be self-sufficient. Adults can be so self-sufficient. What we really need to be is like children. Utterly and totally dependent on our Heavenly Father for everything in life. Not dependent on ourselves. I can do this. I can pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps. I can, I can get my way into heaven. Friend, those who trust in themselves will not gain entrance. But those that come to Jesus with this childlike dependency will be welcomed with open arms. Friend, today is the day of salvation. We pray that you would leave here knowing that you can be saved not because you're good or not because of who you are and how much money you have or what kind of education you have gained or what kind of prestige you have found, but solely based like the tax collector. Friend, do you see the point? Like the tax collector, children haven't lived long enough in order to do enough good things to merit the kingdom of God. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? I mean, you think of an adult, they, they live a long life. They have more opportunity to do good things. They, they get jobs and they have money and they have resources and they think they do all these good things, but children, they've had, they have a short on-ramp. They, there is no lengthy life of good works that a young child can do to merit God's acceptance. Thus, like children, we do not come to God thinking we have earned His love, but we come expecting it just as a child expects to be fed by their parents. So we expect that God will save if you would only come to Him. Well, we've seen that those that are self-righteous are out those that are self-sufficient are out, and lastly, those who are self-serving. Jesus concludes this section, or Luke rather, concludes this section by recording a, an interaction that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him a very timely question there in verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I, I do? You see it? Oh, you see it. What do I have to do in order to get this inheritance? What do I have to do? And Jesus uses this as an opportunity out of love and grace and compassion for this man exposing his sin. And Jesus responds with a wonderful question, why do you call me good? You see, the fundamental problem with this man's theology is that he thought that he could be good enough for God. And Jesus makes so clear that we can never be good enough. We can't, do, we can't obey enough rules in order to be acceptable to God. Jesus makes so clear this theological truth that only God is good. No one, he says, is good except God alone. And then he begins to list out the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are, are ten words that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And they were given as the, the, the guide for the nation of Israel of how to worship God and how to relate to one another. 
Uh, The law is easily divided into two parts. The first four are about how the nation of Israel was to relate to God, how they were to worship God. And then the, the last six hinge on the commandment to obey father and mother and how we relate with one another. And Jesus goes on there in verse 20, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And if you know that list and maybe you memorize that as a child, you notice something's missing. The 10th commandment is missing. Do not covet. Because Jesus is about to expose this man, his true heart, that he was coveting. And so the man responds, I've kept all of these from my youth. Now notice Jesus doesn't debate the point. He probably had. But Jesus knew his heart. Like a master surgeon, he goes into and begins to surgically expose this man's real problem. He had a self-serving heart. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to sell everything that you have. I want you to give it all to the poor. And I want you to come and follow me. Now, I want to make a point very clear. Jesus is, is about to call this man to radical discipleship because this man had a problem, and his problem was covetousness. And Jesus is not saying that rich people can't be saved. He extends salvation to this man. He asks him to come and follow him. It's possible. If he will lay down this idol of self-service and self-sacrifice, then he too can have treasure in heaven, he says. But of course, we we know the end. The man walks away from eternity and is condemned. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Dr. Luke gives us a, a very poignant picture He wasn't just rich. The dude was loaded. He was extremely rich. He had extreme wealth. What Jesus just asked of him was impossible in his mind. And this is why Jesus goes on to say how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus is not saying that it is impossible. He's about to make that clear. Verse 25, he tells this illustration that no doubt many of you have been wrongly taught many years ago. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I know somebody probably in some Sunday school class or some Bible study told you, well, over in, in, uh, in uh, Israel there's a, there's a gate and it's called the eye of the needle and the little camel gets on his knees and crawls through it and you know, only if you come to Jesus on your knees then you'll be saved. That is not true. There's no such thing. No, no, no. Jesus' point is made emphatically clear. A needle, you know, a sewing needle is what he's talking about. And the little eye loop that the thread goes through. A big giant camel can't go through that. It's impossible. That's why Luke, or rather why Peter asked the question, well, Okay, if, if a, he's, like, he's thinking in his mind, a camel can't go through an eye of a needle. That's impossible, Jesus. That's foolishness. 
who then can be saved? You see it there in the text? Verse 26. Those who said, then who can be saved? You see, they're rightly understanding that Jesus has just confronted this man in his sin of all the people in all the world that could buy their way into heaven, here it is. Here's the man. He, he's more holy than you and I will ever dream to be. If he's not acceptable, who can be saved? No one. No one. Jesus makes so clear That what is impossible with man is possible with God. Friend, it is impossible for you to save yourself. It's impossible. Stop trying. Stop trying to be good enough for God. Stop trying to be good enough for your family. Stop trying to be good enough for society. Stop trying to be good in order to earn God's grace and His love. Friend, He loves you in all of your weakness, in all of your warts, in all of your brokenness. Yes, even in all of that sin. That even as it conjures in your mind, you you just want to get under the the pew and hide in shame like Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden. Oh friend, come into the light. He has robes of righteousness that He will clothe you in. You will be acceptable to Him. Not because you've done something, but because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. Only God is able to save. Only those who are willing to radically devote themselves to Jesus will be saved. And this is the point that Jesus concludes with, with with Peter's words. See, we have left homes and followed you. Unless you are willing to die to yourself, die to your wealth, Die to your pleasures. Die to your sin. And understand that you're acceptable only by faith in Christ. Only then can you truly be saved. Brothers and sisters, do-gooders cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It is only for those who are radically devoted to the things of God who gain entrance. Mike McKinley writes this in his commentary. Notice that a works righteousness approach always leads to anxiety. It always leads to anxiety. Well, what do I need to do? What more do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What else is there, Jesus? Is there a Bible study I need to go to? Is there a prayer I need to pray? Is there a baptism I need to have? What is it that I need to do in order to have eternal life? What's the one thing I need, Jesus? McKinley says that it leads to anxiety. But we will never know whether we have enough to please God in an ultimate way. What am I missing spiritually in order to be acceptable to Him? Friend, what a warning that is to us. Idolatry will keep you from the kingdom. What are you worshiping? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your job. Perhaps it's your family. 
your friends. Ryle again is so helpful. In pastoral, he writes this, we must remember eternal life is at stake. One leak neglected is enough to sink a mighty ship. One besetting sin. So what? He had a lot of stuff and he liked good, nice cars. So what? He liked his big house. So what? One besetting sin obstinately clung to is enough to shut a soul out of heaven. What besetting sin is in your heart? What sin are you unwilling to give up and that will keep you from gaining entrance into the kingdom of heaven? So you want more money. If I just had more money, I would be happier. Oh friend, be careful what you ask for. For as this story is told, money can actually keep you from eternal life. Doing good things will never merit the kingdom of God. You and I will never be able to do enough good things to outbalance all of the evil that we've done. Friend, do you want in on this? Do you want to gain entrance into the kingdom of God? Then depend with childlike dependency upon Christ. Lean in on Him and you will be saved. You must depend on the mercy of God given to you in the death and resurrection of Christ. It is impossible to do anything else to please a holy God than to find His pleasure in His own Son. And that pleasing sacrifice for our sin. There was only ever one who lived this pleasing life and He lived it for you that you would believe and therefore be saved. Come, I pray. Come and enter the kingdom of God by faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, help us, we pray in this moment, even as we reflect upon this wonderful truth that You love us despite us, that you welcome us even though we hated you, even though we wanted nothing to do with you, by your grace you pursued us, you came after us, you rescued us. Let us never think a thought of pride that we somehow have merited this. Forgive us of such thoughts, we pray, and may we find our worth in Christ alone. For His glory and our eternal good, we pray in His name. Amen. As we conclude this morning, we do so through Him in order to reflect the theological truths we've thought about. And we do so through this next one, my worth is not in what I own. Let's stand and sing together.